Greetings, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Galatians. We are rapidly approaching the close here. We've got two chapters left. Um, And, of course, as we've been looking at Galatians, the problem that Paul has run into is after he's gone through and preached the gospel, we've had some other teachers come behind him and say, Paul left out one detail in order to be a Christian and be righteous in God's sight. You've got to believe in Christ and be circumcised. And, of course, Paul's argument has been that circumcision is not a requirement. And, of course, he's argued this case biblically, which, of course, is interesting in its own right, that St. Paul would appeal to the Scriptures, almost as if he were following sola scriptura himself, in order to demonstrate his theological point, namely that Abraham was justified, reckoned righteous by God prior to circumcision and without circumcision, and thus also to, be a, to become a Gentile Christian, to have faith in Christ, is to be righteous in God's sight. And we don't need circumcision. Whether one is circumcised or not doesn't matter in the least in regard to the kingdom of God. But of course, if one were to be uncircumcised and believe the false teachers and thus think, huh, I better be circumcised just in case. And that way, Christ plus circumcision kind of hedge my bets, but I'm going to go ahead and do that. Uh, Paul cuts right to the chase and says, you have then fallen from grace. You have, in fact, as we're going to look at Paul's language, very interesting language here I'll be pointing out along the way. Paul says, in effect, you have cut yourself off from Christ, or you have circumcised yourself off from Christ, if circumcision is understood as cutting off a piece of flesh. Okay, then you've fallen away, like a piece of now dead flesh, from grace. All right, so that brings us back up to speed. Now, before we jump into uh, the very end of chapter 4 and rush into chapter 5, let's have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, if you recall Paul's last argument from the end of chapter 4, he uses a typological argument, and he stacks a bunch of figures on top of each other. But the basic premise is that um, you have Ishmael and Hagar and Jerusalem below and this slavery to the law um, juxtaposed with Isaac and Sarah and the Jerusalem above and the freedom that is ours in Christ. And then tying into this theme of whether or not you're sons of Abraham, whether you're or not you're uh, children of the barren one, if you are 
free than your sons of Abraham. If you are children of the barren ones, your your sons of Sarah, or yeah, children of Sarah, uh, and Paul, in drawing this typological argument, is saying, okay, so to be circumcised is to jump back into the wrong pile. And you don't want to do that. Verse 28 of chapter 4, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, Hagar and Ishmael. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And then from this, uh, again, there's no reason to put a chapter break here, but (coughs) from this, you can see the immediate connection in chapter 5, verse 1. If we are children, not of the slave, but of the free woman, then for freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of douleos, slavery. So what would be the yoke of slavery? Well, being circumcised. And if you're circumcised, as Paul's going to say, you're a debtor to keep the entire law. And if you're a debtor to keep the entire law, you're really a slave. You're an Ishmael. Uh, You're a Hagar. You're Jerusalem below. And, of course, that's not what we have in Christ Jesus. Now, that corresponds to, um, and I don't want to make too much of this, but it corresponds again to this paradigm shift that Paul introduces at the very beginning of the epistle, one to which we've returned and will continue to return at chapter 1, verse 4. The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So Paul will describe his own experience in Judaism and then being delivered from that into this glorious Christian freedom. He was once under a pedagogue, now he's reached the fullness of sonship. Uh, He was once a slave, now he's free. That's the kind of paradigm shift that comes through the death of Christ on the cross, which is important for us as Lutherans because the death of Christ on the cross doesn't simply mean the forgiveness of sins. There are many different ways to articulate what Christ's death on the cross means, including something so wonderful, if not a little challenging to understand, as the death of this present evil age and a transition into a new creation that is here now and not yet fully realized. Now, that uh, not submitting again to a yoke of slavery, that language, douleos, is going to recur in a very important way as we get into the middle of this chapter, so I'll refer us back here in a, in a moment. Verse 2, he continues his argument, Look, or behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, that is, if you become circumcised, that's what's meant, Christ will be of no ophelese, of no advantage, of no benefit, of no profit. Why? Again, I think it's helpful if you go back to the 
to 1-4 in this frame that Paul is working with, that Christ through his death delivered us from this present evil age. You've been delivered, now you want to go back to it. And that's what Paul's talking about, about going back to the elementary principles of this world. So if you want to go back to circumcision, then you are going back into this present evil age from which Christ through his death has delivered us. So then Christ becomes of no benefit to you. You see how that's working? Temporally, spatially, would be better ways of thinking about it in Paul than anything else. And of course, I think that there is, there is some irony. I, I was told, boy, maybe it's been close to a year ago already that running through some American evangelical circles is this whole uh, Torah life and trying to, even though you're a Christian, you're trying to live as a Jew and follow Jewish dietary customs and all of this other stuff. And I mean, in one sense, like, fine, who cares? You're free in Christ to, I don't know, do a Zimbabwean diet if you want. I mean, what does it matter? Uh, But the point being that what is tacitly being asserted is that this is a better way and the best way, and then in some extreme cases even, hey, this is the way God designed. Why did we ever get rid of this? So you're sinful if you're not doing this stuff. And we hear a, a, a narrower argument made by, for example, Seventh-day Adventists that if you're not meeting on the Sabbath day, on Saturday, then you've departed from the law and thus you're doing something wrong. I mean, all of these are, are kind of modern instantiations of this desire to pull us back into the present evil age from which Christ, through his death on the cross, has delivered us into freedom. So for them, it's circumcision. But for us, I would say that this impulse is still, as odd as it may seem, alive and well in uh, American evangelicalism. Of course, From the time of the Reformation forward, when we look at Roman Catholicism, we see Roman Catholicism saying something to the effect of, in order to be righteous in God's sight, it's not so much faith and circumcision, but it's faith and works, faith and good works. We see the same kind of categorical error there, made more clearly, maybe maybe made more egregiously um, by Rome. So... Galatians, in other words, could not be more relevant to us uh, today. So again, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. I testify, now notice the formal language, and we're going to see this also when Paul warns them not to live in the way of the flesh in just a moment. Here he is solemnly testifying again. Paul has a very apocalyptic frame here. He is covering his bases as an apostle of Christ that, look, I am bearing witness. I am testifying to you. This is a formal teaching. And it's as if he has the the judgment itself in view, the final judgment. Marturome, I testify again to every man. Again, not just Jews or Gentiles or anyone, but every man 
who accepts circumcision or who would become circumcised would be a little more literal. That he is, and the ESV has obligated to keep the whole law, which is fine, but he is a debtor the whole law to do. That is to say, if, and I think that gives it just a little bit of a different flavor, um, when you are circumcised, you are jumping into the entire way of the law, the dietary laws, the um, clothing laws, the sacrificial law, the whole thing. You don't get to pick and choose. You can't selectively go, yeah, well, I'm just not going to eat bacon and be circumcised and call it a day. That's not how this thing works. If you jump in, you're jumping in with both feet. That's Paul's argument. So, I testify again to every man who accepts or who would become circumcised that he is a debtor the whole law to do. He is obligated to keep the whole law. Now, here is where I think, frankly, Paul's language is delightful. I think it's intentional. He <laughs> this entire section, he is, very, he is really doing some fun things. And I think out of a sense of um, maybe just conservatism or reverence, the English doesn't quite translate it as viscerally as it obviously is in the original language. I'll try to draw that out as we go along. But he says, you are severed, cut off from Christ. Already you're seeing the irony here that if you would cut off your flesh, you're going to be cut off from Christ. You, and then parallel statement, but this is clarifying too. Because those who are desiring to be circumcised aren't desiring it as, hey, well, circumcised, not circumcised, I don't know, what are the health benefits? That's not what they have in view. What they have in view is in order to be justified or righteous in God's sight. Thus, the next line, which is parallel to it, you who would be justified, that's the dikaiosune language, which is equal to righteousness in this section. So, you who would be seen as righteous by God, might be a way to translate that with righteous. You who would be justified or seen as righteous by God, by the law or through the law, you have now fallen away here. Let me see if I can find my note. Yeah, ex episada, dropped away from grace. Okay, so you have been, these are parallel statements, you've been severed or cut off from Christ, you have dropped away or fallen from grace. I think what Paul's doing here, and it's going to get more visceral, is is like as the foreskin hits the floor, so do you. (laughs) Only you're being dropped from Christ, dropped from grace. I think it's that visceral, and I think he even doubles down on this um, in a couple more places. That's the picture he's working with. Now, Verse, verses 4 and 5 have specifically to do with, with justification. That's obvious in the language at the latter half of verse 4. And then verse 5 continues, For through the Spirit, by faith, and of course Paul's whole argument is that we're justified by faith, not by the works of the law, but by faith. So 
For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of dikaiosunes, righteousness, justification. For in Christ, and this is important, um, in Christ is technical language for Paul. In 3.26 and 27, he addresses what that means, if you recall, three. Chapter 3, verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And then 27, the parallel statement, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So to be in Christ is to be in faith and in baptism. Those are the means by which one is in Christ, and then to be in Christ is no longer to be in this present evil age. To be in Christ is no longer to be bound to circumcision, dietary laws, or any other parts of the law. Okay, So it's a transition into a new creation in Christ. That transition takes place by means of faith and baptism. Okay, so what does that mean then? In Christ represents a shift. Um, if, we were to, if we were to be really technical about this, we would see verses 4 and 5 as justification verses, and then verse 6 as shifting to a passage about regeneration or being a new creation. That's what it means for Paul to be in Christ. Thus, what comes next? In Christ Jesus... So, having moved from the law into Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. That is to say, you'd be free to be circumcised or uncircumcised. Now, in these particular circumstances, if you do this, desiring to be righteous in God's sight, you've fallen from grace. Okay? Now, this is interesting, and I'll try to take the most obscure point first, and that is to say that things that are inherently or by nature indifferent or adiaphora, that's the fancy language for something that God has neither commanded nor forbidden, even if something is inherently indifferent or an adiaphora, circumstantially, its commission or omission can become sinful. It's a difficult point for people to wrap their heads around, but it's one of the, it's one of the chief arguments Paul makes through Galatians here, through Corinthians, for example, in our reading in the, in the service earlier this morning, we saw the same thing with food um, that has been offered to idols, whether or not one should eat it. Paul's whole point there is, you can eat whatever you want, you're free in Christ, but if, you're, if the use of your freedom causes your brother to fall away from the faith, to fall into a guilty conscience, and maybe he thinks in eating that now he's worshiping Christ and a demon, well, now that freedom, that offer, that indifferent thing, has now become a sinful thing that you must not do for the sake of your brother. So there's many such instances, and this is just difficult for people to wrap their heads around because they, they always want to say, you know, you always want to say, like, well, where's that in the Bible? Well, precisely in a passage like this, where an indifferent thing can become a sinful thing, whether it's done or undone, depending upon the context. Um, where would be an example? We've got examples of that in the Bible that I've provided. Where would be an example of that uh, argumentation um, in the Lutheran confessions? 
the Lutheran confessions talk about this uh, uh, in regard to ceremonies. Any ceremonies, liturgical rites, or customs that would confuse people into thinking you're something you're not are sinful. So that even though you may be free in Christ to do whatever you want to do in worship, um, if you're doing that in such a way that it's deceiving people into thinking you're something you're not, circumstantially that becomes sinful. So if you're pretending to be a Roman Catholic, uh, that's dishonest. If you're pretending to be an evangelical, that's dishonest. Um, Those would be cases in which uh, something that is free, according to the circumstances, thus becomes sinful. Okay, a subtle point, a difficult point, but that's where we can get, you know, in one line, Paul's saying, if you become circumcised, Christ is of no advantage to you. And then just several lines later, saying that in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Okay? Now, with that little digression aside... Paul's shift in verse 6 to being in Christ that is regenerated, made new, a new creation, having moved on from the present evil age and become something entirely new, then in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Okay, and We're going to talk about what that what that love is momentarily. So the study note um, down on 5.6, circumcised or not, one's physical condition has no (coughs) impact on one's relationship to God. It is irrelevant. Um, And then Luther has these words to say, faith is a divine work in us which changes us and makes us to be born anew of God. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, (coughs) mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good incessantly. And of course, then from the confessions, love ought to follow faith. So what's Paul's argument that in Christ, fruitfulness and good works is it doesn't lead one unto circumcision. <coughs> Fruitfulness and good works is faith working in love. So it's not faith working in circumcision, but faith working in love. That's his point. Okay. So as a new creation in Christ, it's not faith wor- leading you to be circumcised. It's faith leading you to love your neighbor, which is going to become apparent um, over in verses 13 through 15. We'll get there in a minute. Let's pause there and see if you have any thoughts or any questions. Hopefully everything's relatively clear. I think it's a fairly straightforward argument. Good, good. Okay, and then seven. You were running well. Who hindered, except it's not hindered. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? It's Anakopsin, kapsao, that language um, is to cut. So, who cut you off from obeying the truth? (laughs) He's at his old games again. Um, If you are, if you cut off that part of your body, you are cut off from obeying the truth. That's the language. 
And this language recurs here in a moment, famously, where he tells them to emasculate themselves. So who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who cut you off from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. It's not from Christ. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And here this has to do with with justification and the nature of our relationship to God. That if you throw anything as a condition that you have to fulfill, it's like you take unleavened bread, you put in a little bit of leaven, and it's not unleavened anymore. You, You take grace, you put in just a little bit of work, no matter how microscopic, and it's not grace anymore. And that's Paul's point here, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You add one conditional into the gospel, it's no longer the gospel. It's no longer grace. Whether that be circumcision or anything else under the sun. I mean, even something so subtle as in our day where faith is transformed into the work that we must do in order to uh, be righteous in God's sight. All that does is makes it uncertain as to whether or not we would have ever done enough to be righteous in God's sight. So a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And then he continues, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. Just a nice rhetorical move. And the one who is troubling you will bear the krima, the judgment or penalty. And again, Paul's already announced that that's anathema, whether an angel or an apostle or himself or anyone else. That's anathema, that's condemnation. So that's what's in view here. Um, whoever is troubling you will bear the krima, the judgment or penalty, whoever he is. Again, completely irrespective of person. It doesn't matter in the least to Paul, even if it's an angel from heaven. God doesn't care. You're botching the gospel. Now, 11's curious, and the study note's helpful, but let's just read it. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? So, when did Paul preach circumcision? Before he was a Christian, when he was a Jew. And he's saying, hey, if I'm, if I'm still preaching circumcision, then why are the Jews stoning me and beating me every place I go? Now, why would Paul have to say this? Here the study note I think is helpful. Opponents may have accused Paul of inconsistency, perhaps because he did circumcise Timothy. Remember, Timothy was circumcised, Titus uncircumcised. And that was uh, much to Paul's benefit and, and much to the concrete expression of this theology is given. Look, whether you're circumcised or not doesn't matter, but if someone's going to force you to on pain of salvation, um, as with Titus, then the answer is no, he's not circumcised, and I'm going to bring him uncircumcised to the Jerusalem church. Remember this earlier in Galatians. And he's going to stand there with the Holy Spirit, testifying that the Lord Jesus Christ is his Savior, and he's uncircumcised. And you're going to have to look him in the face and be like, uh, no, sorry, you're not one of us. Which, of course, they would not do. So Timothy and Titus are the physical instantiations of Paul's theology, of good biblical theology. All right, so obviously Paul's saying, I don't still preach circumcision. If I did, or in that case, the offense, the scandal of the cross has been removed. Why? Because the scandal of the cross here, narrowly, is that it's the cross alone. Not the cross plus circumcision or the cross plus anything else. The cross alone. Why the cross? 
again, that goes back to the way Paul is thinking that it is in one four that it is Christ who gave Himself on the cross for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. That's why it's the cross here, because the cross is the deliverance from the necessity of circumcision or any other works of the law. The cross is that act that brings an end to the old and a dawning to the new. In that case, the offense or scandal of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you, who cause you to shake or shift, unsettle you, would apokopsantai. It's the same kopsao language of cutting. Apokopsantai would cut themselves, um, but the apo is is kind of uh, what causes it to be translated as emasculate, cut off themselves. It can be understood as like excommunicate themselves, but that's just very weak. I don't think that that's what Paul's after. Paul's like, hey, they want to be circumcised so bad and perfect themselves in the flesh. Would that they just go all the way? Which, of course, has the irony of then they they wouldn't be fit to be teachers either. Uh, So (laughs) it's no longer ostensibly male, but having become eunuchs, they wouldn't be fit to be authoritative teachers. All right, so we get some... um, Wordplay from the Apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's um, really pretty, uh, pretty colorful. Pastor. Yes, please. Uh, just uh, if you could answer this. Uh, Paul, you know, elsewhere in Scripture, he says, I, I don't know the exact words, but become what? have to in order to deliver the gospel to these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, here he's very hard and fast. Uh, comment on uh, why he's so hard with them and, and elsewhere he says, well, you have to become circumcised, become circumcised. So that, yeah. that, uh, It's a really great question. So the determining factor is if the question is justification or not. That's the determining factor, okay? Paul himself is more than happy to live as a Jew in order to win the Jews. He'll, he'll go in, he'll follow the dietary laws and the clothing laws and the rites and the rituals and everything else. He'll do that so that he can gain a hearing to preach Christ. That's, that's a good use of his Christian freedom. On the flip side, he'll come here to Capo Beach and, you know, Don the the man bikini and head down and you know and hang out on the uh, smoking a cigarette on the beach with everybody else and and preach the gospel. Um, he'll become all things to all people. He'll live like a Gentile when a, in, among the Gentiles and like a Jew among the Jews. And that's his that's the freedom we all can employ to put forward the gospel to whoever needs to hear it. I'm exaggerating with that caricature, by the way. You can not you know write me the angry email, uh, but you get the point. Now, if somebody says, though, hey, you have to live like a Jew in order to be saved or in order to be justified in God's sight, he's going to say, absolutely not, and here I am living like a Gentile right in front of you to demonstrate that. Somebody said you have to live like a Gentile in order to be, you know, you have to somehow reverse your circumcision, which, by the way, I didn't know was a thing even in the ancient world. Um, Very disturbing. Don't look into that. Uh, 
but even if somebody said, hey, you got to do that in order to be saved, Paul would be like, here I am living like a Jew, and I'm not going to... I'm not going to have anything to do with that. The Jews would get the Jewish men when they went to the Roman baths would get mocked, um, and uh, I won't go into it. So yeah, it's not it's not a hypothetical exactly, but if justification's at stake, you don't conform. That's the that's really the principle. If justification's not at stake, you do conform. Now it gets a little more subtle when you talk about different times in which something that is truly free, a Christian freedom, something that God has neither commanded nor forbidden, and how that affects the people around you. That becomes a a challenging area, and that's where you kind of get into this, what about meat sacrifice to idols? and, and those kinds of questions. Are there times where we must curtail our Christian freedom for the sake of our neighbor? And there Paul says yes. And the Lutheran confessors say yes. Or there are times where we must make a stand um, where otherwise the scriptures lay no necessity upon us. We must make... You know, I mean, what if somebody came in and said... Well, that very thing that apparently is passing through some evangelical circles. Hey, you, you Lutherans, to really do it right, you've got to meet on Saturdays and you've got to start, you know, stop eating pork and shellfish and um, do the Daniel diet or whatever the case may be. And they said, you've got to do this. Uh, no, I don't think we will. You've got to do this in order to be righteous in God's sight. No, we definitely won't. So there are instances in which you as a, as a Christian would, by nature of the context, say yes, absolutely, or no, absolutely, to these things that are otherwise left free. And that's just that's a difficult theological point, but it's one you see in the scriptures, and it's one the church has had to reckon with. So hopefully that helps, though. The simplest frame is um, Paul will uh, circumcise um, uh, Timothy so that he's received by the... It's not a justification issue. So that he's received by the Jews so that they may hear the preaching of the gospel. Um, he refuses to have Titus circumcised under this because they're saying, hey, you've got to do this in order to be saved. So he's like, absolutely not. Okay, great question. Anything else? Doing okay? All right, so let's hit 13 and then we'll kind of round out this section. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Now, this takes us back to, um, he's made his argument and he's kind of come full circle here. So it behooves us here to look back at 5.1 where it began, really properly, of course, began in 31, 4.31. Brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of douleos, slavery, Okay. Now here, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, douloieta, serve, or because we don't have a good English, be slaves unto one another. Now that line right there has two important parts because... Um, 
look at 5.1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And yet in 13, he says, here's the whole point. Freedom is not for the flesh, but to be slaves of one another. So what kind of yoke of slavery is forbidden in 5.1? Any yoke of slavery by which we would be justified before God. But does that mean, hey, I'm free, I don't have to do anything? No, and that using the same exact language, Paul says you're a slave to your neighbor. Okay, So it's a little more complex than, and we're going to see this when we get to love, but it's a little more complex than for freedom Christ has set you free so you don't need anything. That's it. That's the end. No, no law, no love, no service to your neighbor, nothing. Just, hey, for freedom. Um, that's not at all what Paul's saying. Let's make the, we just made the connection with the language of uh, do loss, do leos, and do loyete. But let's move on to love and make the connection there because Paul has already spoken about love. So once more from um, 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, Duloyeta, slave for one another. Now, where did we see love? We saw love back in verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. That's the freedom for which we have been set free. But only faith working through love. Look at the parallel. But through love, serve one another. Slave for one another. So, have we been set free from loving one another? No. Have we been set free from slaving or serving one another? No. Have we been set free from justifying ourselves before God by circumcision or by anything else? Yes. That's the point. So, our service of the neighbor doesn't justify, but it is nonetheless precisely the thing we should do. We're free from love of neighbor as something that justifies us. But we're bound to love of neighbor as something we as Christians, who have been justified by faith alone, are to do. That's the paradox that's so difficult for people. I don't know. Apparently it's difficult. But it's clear as a bell here. So, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love. And that also then helps us understand freedom that freedom isn't, hey, whatever I want to do. And Paul's going to drive this point home, so I won't spend too much time here doing it. But that's the way Americans usually conceive of freedom. Freedom means anything I can think to do, that's on the table now. Isn't, isn't that generally how we think about it? I mean, if you're free to order anything off the menu, that means anything off the menu. And if I say, hey, but you can't, you're free to order anything off the menu as long as it's from the dollar section, the dollar value meal section, You'd look at me and say, well, that's not very free, right? So freedom in America applies everything, but that's not the way that Paul's thinking here. Freedom means freed from your flesh, freed to love and serve your neighbor. See how it's a very different paradigm? It's like, hey, you're not free to remain in slavery or break through your chains. That's not what Paul's saying. So you can decide to be in chains or not. That's not what Paul's saying. You've been set free from those chains to go do. That's the sense in which he means you've been set free. You've been set free from the flesh to love your neighbor. What does the flesh want to do? Little, little harmo- a little uh, homiletical, little sermonic point. But the flesh wants to serve 
itself. And ironically, that's exactly how we think of freedom is I can do anything I want to do. <laughs> But that's not freedom, biblically speaking. That's bondage. That's bondage to the self. That's exactly what Luther is getting after in bondage of the will. It's that my will itself is bound to do its own selfish things. And so to be set free from that is to serve not myself, but my neighbor, not my flesh, but my neighbor. And, and so I just think it's important for us to really look at Paul in his own words, describing what freedom is. That freedom, uh, so only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So freedom is from the flesh for the sake of loving and serving one another. It's a completely different paradigm than we as Americans typically think, which is why we've got so messed up on this point. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this is beautiful. Is, is Paul telling us to love as Christians? Yeah, of course. In Christ Jesus, this is why verse 6 is so important. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith working through love. In Christ Jesus, faith working through love. Now, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Are Christians supposed to love? Are Christians supposed to fulfill the law? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do we have to do this in order to be justified or righteous in God's sight? Absolutely not. Are we still to do this? Absolutely. Sorry, I got so excited and knocked over my coffee. Good thing, good thing the lid held. Hopefully that was for a very dramatic effect on camera. Yeah, so, I mean, that's the paradox here. Um, we're not justified by these things. We're set free to do them for the sake of our neighbor. Does that make sense? Or uh, anything, um, anything confusing or anything binds you up there in that, uh, in that section? Okay. Now, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, of course, is cited from Leviticus 19.18. But if you look in that column on your study Bible, under verse 14, uh, what you'll see there is a number of references where Jesus says the same thing. So the idea that Christians are to go on loving God and neighbor really should not be controversial. We don't love God and neighbor in order to be justified, but rather because we are justified, we love God and neighbor. In fact, before we were justified, it was impossible for us to love God and neighbor. But now that we are, we can. So rather than loving your neighbor as yourself, Paul introduces this uh, colorful alternative. I don't know exactly where he gets it from, but um, in verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So it's kind of the opposite of serving and giving to your neighbor would be biting and devouring your neighbor. And the whole point is there, if, if you're serving and giving, it's this, kind of, uh, it's this kind of abundance mentality of the more you give, the more you'll have, the more everyone will have. You don't give to your neighbor and end up empty. You give to your neighbor and end up full. But on the contrary, if you try to eat and devour and be filled upon your neighbor, you're going to end up being your neighbor's food next. So that's his meditation, I think, the selflessness and 
flowing out of love and the superabundance and almost infinitude of love versus the opposite, which is eating and consuming until it's all simply consumed and gone. Those are two different impulses or ways. Yeah, please. Uh, one second. Let's get, you, let's get you the microphone up here and then back there. These were my handouts for Sunday, and now they've got coffee spilled on them, which looks just like uh, almost all the papers on my desk. I've always been a clumsy individual, and the older I get, the worse it is. Yes, please. Take your bunny trails and I lose my thought. <laughs> oh, yeah, me too. Imagine being the one talking when it happens. This is so contrary to human, at least to me. Mm-hmm. What other piece of literature uh, speaks that mm. contrary? Right. It's, it's unique to the scriptures, just as this message of... Uh, this message of Christianity, I think, you know, Francis Pieper, one of our great Lutheran dogmaticians, put it so well, there's really only two religions in the world. There's Christianity and the religion of the free forgiveness of sins on account of Christ Jesus, and there's everything else. And everything else is you've got to do something in order to be righteous in God's sight. Christianity comes and proclaims you are righteous in God's sight. Wonderful. How then would God have me live? Do good to others. What's the last statement? Um, how, how would, then, would God have me live? Now that he's given me this righteousness, full and free in Christ Jesus, how would he have me live? Go love and serve your neighbor. Please. I was just going to say, I think we had a really good example of this, biting one another in our society with all the COVID stuff. Mm-hmm. And as he says down here in 515, it even can get into the ugliness of bitter partisan strife in the congregation. Yeah. So he's really pointed that out for us. Yeah, and he's going to bring that up with dissensions and divisions and rivalries and all this other kind of stuff that um, can infect the congregation. And yeah, it is. uh, we're going to see him give some real practical advice in terms of how to avoid these things. Um, Part of it is, uh, he's going to say, is um, bearing one another's burdens. Okay, So, you know, if, if someone, like, lays a burden upon you, let's say they sin against you or say something just obnoxious or stupid, okay, to bear with that rather than bite them and then have them bite you and be devoured, to bear with that is to actually fulfill the law of Christ because it's Christ who has borne our sins and our stupidity and foolishness. And so when we bear those of our neighbors, our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we are fulfilling the law of Christ, the law of love. In antithesis to that that would be devouring. So, yeah, exactly. But it's amazing. I mean, if it's not one thing, it's the other. I know we, uh, if it's not politics or... um, the uh, pandemic, it's the, it's the carpet in the new expansion or the lighting in this room or that. Congregations are always tempted by Satan to divide and to devour one another. And it's not so much like if, it's when and what, because the temptation will come. And so then how do we deal with that when it comes? That's really what uh, Paul's going to be after here in a few more verses. Please. Um, what God is telling us to love, serving our neighbors, is really practically an impossible task to do. Mm-hmm. And 
how can we, even though the Bible says our, our best deed is like a building. Mm-hmm. So can you explain a little bit about that, the con- these two contradictions on whatever comes out from our Intention or from the bottom of our heart to do anything we we choose to do because we are practically very limited on serving because well based on our limitations but still how can we kind of how can we love and serve on something that is practically impossible for us to do? Mm, yeah, it's a great question. So. Let me, let me start with the idea of um, our good deeds being as, and again, the language in Isaiah is very visceral here, that our good deeds before God being as used menstrual rags. Okay. Well, if we take the deeds that we've done, let's just put it that way, the deeds that we in our own minds consider to be good, and we set them before God, and exalt ourselves before him and say, hey, here's my resume. You probably want me on your team. Uh, You probably want me in heaven. Uh, If we exalt ourselves, he will humble us. And that is kind of a disgusting self-righteousness. And as he views those those quote-unquote good works that we've put up, he sees them as reprehensible as used menstrual rags, not only because they themselves are tainted and filthy and selfish and fallen and all of that, but precisely because, like, why so nasty in his sight? Because those are the very, it's as if we're trying to buy him off and he can't, he's not going to have that. I mean, imagine somebody who owed you like a hundred thousand dollars trying to buy you off with like, you know, a fake Chuck E. Cheese coin. You're just going to look at that like in disgust, you know, just at the even the action of doing that. Um, and that's, that's, so that's the paradigm in which um, that way of scripture is speaking, okay? But what if someone in faith receives the free forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus, his perfect righteousness credited to us, and we're, we're baptized into Christ, and we're a new creature, a new creation, what we see within our hearts are impulses that weren't previously there. Whereas previously God was someone to be bought off with our good works, now we don't try that in the least. We love him too much for that. We see how much he's loved us in Christ Jesus. And even the the only response we might have is just thank you. But that's indicative of a massive change in the heart where for the first time we love God as he is and we receive his graciousness, we receive his fatherly care, we receive the sacrifice of Jesus. That change in the heart, even though it may seem relatively small, is massive. That's the difference between heaven and hell. That's the difference between light and darkness. It's it's the difference between two entirely different creatures, an old creature and a new creature. And with that difference and inspired by his love, that love within us begins to grow 
and it grows in ways that are quite hidden to us. Sometimes our growth in the spiritual life is an article of faith. The scriptures say it's ours and we have it, and you go, I don't see it. doesn't mean it's not there. There's all kinds of other things the scripture tell us that we don't see, but they're still there. That's what I mean by sometimes even our growth and sanctification is an article of the faith. Okay, Something we have to believe, not something we necessarily have evidence for. But as that love grows, it's only increased by the gospel and the encouragement of the scriptures to live in such a way that that would continue to blossom and bloom. And that's exactly what Paul's going to go next. So part of that concretely has to do with identifying the impulses of the flesh within us and crucifying them. And identifying those fruit of the spirit and doing everything we can to increase them. Now, where we're free in these things is not whether we're free to do them or not, but we're free from the need to do these things in order to be justified. God's too good for that. He's too loving for that. He's a loving father. I mean, in the same way, like, my son, he comes home after school or after his practices in the summer, and he opens the door to my house as if he owns the place. He just comes in, he kicks off his cleats or his shoes, and just makes himself at home. Has he paid the mortgage? Has he done anything to earn or deserve that? No, but there he is. He's at home. And that's analogous to our justification. We're God's children, irrespective, right? But as, as God's children, he's teaching us and training us to be more like he is. And to, you know, the analogy is the same way I'm teaching my son to be more in the image of God and to grow in faith and hope and love. And God wants the same thing for us. Now, we're sons no matter what, but he sets these things before us. It's like, well, what if I do those imperfectly? Well, of course you're going to do them imperfectly. Um, What if I have days where I don't do them at all? Well, that's to be expected. There's days where my son tries to rebel against everything I tell him to do. Uh, You know, so it doesn't mean we stop being sons, and it doesn't mean that the parental process isn't still in place, that's exactly what's going on in our lives of sanctification. So did that help kind of at least contextualize? And yeah, so, and a lot of this is, is attitudinal, that, that Paul wants us to love and serve one another. He's not so worried that we're going to fail at this, is he's just setting it before us as the glorious way and the image of what it means to be free. While back in my life, I knew a fellow worldly figure that saw interpersonal relations uh, between people as, he said, there's three kind of people, givers, takers, and swappers. <laughs> and he says, beware of who you're dealing with and understand it. Now, in this context, uh, if a Christian is loving a neighbor who happens to be a taker, are there guardrails or are loving, giving, doing, because you're dealing with a taker, uh, or? Well, yeah, it's a good question. I think part of being a good neighbor toward each other, like let's say you had a, you had a kiddo who, um, you know, uh, hypothetically my son were to grow up and go off to college, and, but the grades aren't, nothing's happening with the grades, and he can't find a part-time job, and he's asking me for money, <laughs> right, and and maybe you, you do this, but then you realize you're just being taken advantage of. And at a certain point in time, you realize that love 
is actually saying no, right? So there's instances like that where loving our neighbor isn't just simply laying out cash or continuing to give, but we want to be stewards of our neighbor in that sense. And with parent to child, it's easier to see, but the same might be true in our other relationships, if not a little more difficult to fetch out. So there's a shape to that. I, you know, I would, I would say that as Christians, though, there is a time for all three of those. It's more blessed to give than to receive, Jesus said. So we always want to have our eye out toward giving. That's probably the, that's probably if, if any of those three were the predominant, that'd be the predominant. But that, but there's also a time to receive. The gospel itself teaches us that. And so do our vocations. Sometimes you go, well, why did God allow me to get sick? And it's so that other people can learn to serve their neighbor in you. And I know that's embarrassing and humiliating, but guess what? That's the cross to which God has called you, is to be laid up in this bed, not able to do anything, and you have to receive. And I know, I know it's more blessed to give than to receive. I know you're sitting there miserable that other people are taking care of you, but guess what? That's what I've called you to. That's your good work, to be the taker in this circumstance. And then I think swapping is beautiful too, especially unfair swaps. Unfair swaps are one of the most beautiful things there is because uh, someone does something for someone and they can't ever repay it, but they do some small gesture that they can do. It's profoundly beautiful. It's wonderful. Um, It's this beautiful kind of musical asymmetry and harmony of um, Christians doing back and forth for one another according to their means. You know, some people might, might grab you and fly you across the country because to them that's the same as uh, taking you out to lunch for somebody else. So, the, uh, you know, everybody gives according to their means and that swapping is kind of a beautiful thing too. Uh, yeah. So I would just say for Christians, all three of those, there's a time and a place, right? But, but swapping in a marriage, if you go into a marriage with the idea that I'll do for you, and then you do for me. I, I think that's wrong. Lee. It's not good. Yeah, yeah. it's not good. I, there's a kind of truth to that, that marriage, ha- all vocations have a kind of transactional aspect to them. I, it's just kind of unavoidable. Um, but right, it's, yeah, going into it with that mentality and having that be the only mentalizes quid pro quo or you owe me now is really toxic. And I think that's what you're getting after. Yeah. Okay, very good. So, um, oh, we're running a little short on time. Let's see. Love neighbor, don't devour one another. And then we were really going to get into, uh, well, let's just hit 16 and we'll call it a day, realizing that we have to go into what this means. But you'll see how this connects. I, um, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not uh, gratify uh Teleote or teleote, which is end, finish, or bring to fulfillment, which I think is an important distinction because um, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's not saying you're going to exterminate the desires of the flesh. The desire, the desire of the flesh, or the impulse of the flesh, which, by the way, this is epithumian or passion, t- most typically translated. So the passion of the flesh is going to be there. The desire is to walk by the Spirit and thus not bring to fulfillment the desire or the passion of the flesh. Okay? So, you know, the passion of the flesh to toward gluttony or something is just going to be there, like have the fifth pork chop. And, you know, you want to be able to say no 
and I should have cut it off at two, right? <laughs> I'm just teasing. But, you know, you got these passions of the flesh, these desires of the flesh. The job is to walk by the Spirit and thus not allow those to come into fulfillment. That's the goal. You're not going to, how does Luther put it? You can't stop the bird from flying over your head. Or you, I think he might even say, you can't stop the bird from landing in your hair, but you can stop him from building a nest. You know, this kind of, even if it wasn't Luther, whatever this proverbial saying is, it illustrates the point that just because the passion or desire is there doesn't mean you must bring it to fulfillment. It needs to stop there. And so we'll get into that walking by the spirit and not by the flesh, this dichotomy, the two at war with one another within us that Paul sets forward. And then the way he says that we should go. When, again, we're going to tie this into the bigger picture of Galatians, which is, hey, you've been justified by grace through faith apart from the works of the law. You are free in Christ Jesus. Now, what does that look like? And it doesn't look like, go do whatever you want. It looks like, put to death the deeds of the flesh and live according to the fruits of the Spirit. That's what it looks like. All right, we'll see you next week. The Lord be with you.